Well, we continue our journey uh, in the book of Jacob. As, as the more I read the book of Jacob, the more I realize that Jacob was telling it just like it is. I mean, he is straightforward in what we need to know as believers. And um, this particular section, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, uh, is no different. Um, title of this message is Grace to the Humble. Grace to the Humble. How many of you remember a song by Mac Davis called It's Hard, called it's hard to Be Humble? Here, here are some of the, the lyrics. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. He wrote that song about me, by the way. One of the things I like most about Son of David congregation is that we are people who understand that we're not perfect. I love how all of you pursue our perfect God. Pursue Him with a commitment to gather, to grow, to give, and to go with the good news of Messiah. Your devotion to the Word of God, well, to say the least, it's encouraging. It's a blessing to serve here as your congregational leader. Our passage today is hard-biting, and it stands in stark contrast to what I would call the easy believism and syrupy spirituality that is so prevalent in our culture today. So grab your Bibles or your phones or your iPads and turn to the book of Jacob chapter 12 verses 1 chapter 4 verses 1 to 12. And remember that these words follow the warning against worldly wisdom. And here's what we're going to learn this morning. God gives grace to the humble, not to the haughty. God gives grace to the humble and not to the haughty. And so, as is our custom, would you please stand as I read the Word of God. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you are asking amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. 
He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Amen. Please be seated. One thing we have to understand in this passage is he's speaking to believers. He's not speaking to the world. He's speaking to us. And I see three main truths in this passage. Three main truths that I want to speak about. The first one is this. The problems among us are rooted within us. The problems among us are rooted within us. Two. The promises to us come from above us. The promises to us come from above us. And three, the prescriptions for us must be taken by us. Number one, the problems among us are rooted within us. Instead of blaming outside factors or other people, When we encounter problems, we need to identify the forces at work on the inside, according to verse 1. Quote, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Specifically, when we are in conflict with fellow believers, we need to examine our own lives and understand that there's a war going on inside. One commentator points out that the war within us is a constant warring campaign. Specifically, I think Jacob is telling us that it's our passions in the pursuit of pleasure that put us at odds with one another. Now the word passions here is the same words used by Yeshua in Luke 8.14 in the parable of the soils. You may remember that parable describes the seed that fell among the thorns, quote, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature, end quote. We need to admit that our main problems are rooted within us, not outside of us. A newspaper once sent an inquiry to several famous authors asking this question, what's wrong with the world today? One author quickly replied, I am, yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton, by the way, was a writer, philosopher, and theologian that lived in the late 1800s and the early 1900s. And Jacob drills down on this in verses 2 to 4 to help us identify four battles that are going on inside of us. First, the battle of unfulfilled desires. The battle of unfulfilled desires. Verse 2. You desire and do not have, so you murder. I'm telling you, Jacob tells it like it is. Now, the word desire here means a lusting or a longing for. You see, when our longings are unfulfilled, we're prone to take others out. When David's desire for Bathsheba led him to adultery, he then murdered her husband Uriah. The verse, by the way, here continues, You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Covet. It means to boil with envy. You see, when our insides are stirred up, 
we're miserable and we go into attack mode by fighting with other people. I know everybody here has got that t-shirt, wears it every once in a while. If unsatisfied desires lead to deep resentment, then the key to avoiding conflict is contentment. Secondly, unasked prayers. Again, in this section, according to the last part of verse 2, sometimes we don't have what we really need simply because we've not told God about our needs. Quote, you do not have because you do not ask. The real reason behind prayerlessness, please listen, is often proud self-reliance. When I don't pray, I'm saying I can handle things on my own. The reason for unanswered prayer may simply be because your prayers have gone unasked. Third, underlying motives. According to verse 3, another reason we're discontent might be because we're praying with wrong motives. Quote, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word spend here has the idea of squandering and wasting. The indulgence at all cost is what we're talking about here. The pursuit of pleasure or sensual self-indulgence. Psalm 66, 18 puts it this way. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You see, when I pray selfishly, it shows that I'm trying to use God for my own purposes rather than seeking God for his purposes. Third, I'm sorry, fourth, unmasked affections. Unmasked affections. Next, Jacob here uses some spiritually charged language in verse 4 to jar us out of complacency and to jar us out of compromise. Quote, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. Now, in the Greek, it literally reads, you adulteresses. And I believe he's picking up on a common image and a common thread that's found in the Tanakh that depicts God as the husband and Israel as his wife. One example is Isaiah, chapter 54, verse 5, quote, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And speaking through the prophets, God accuses his people of committing spiritual adultery. In the, in the book of Hosea, he instructs the prophet to marry a prostitute in order to demonstrate God's faithfulness to us, even when we are unfaithful to him. And in the Brit Hadashah, Passages like the one found in Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Picture our Messiah as a bridegroom. And the Kehillah, the congregation, the church as his bride. And when confronting unbelief, Yeshua called out religious leaders in Matthew 12, 39. He called them, quote, an evil and adulterous generation. So how is it? that we commit a spiritual adultery. Well, look at the rest of verse 4. Quote, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now the word, word world here, I believe, refers mostly to the world system. When we have a growing fondness for the world, we're going to have friction with the God who created it. 
A.W. Tozer once lamented this verse, quote, A whole new generation of Christians has come up believing that it is possible to accept Messiah without forsaking the world. The word enmity is actually hostility or hatred. Romans 8, 7. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. And some of us, maybe some of us in this room, have become so cozy with the world that we've compromised our convictions and are in conflict with God. Matthew 6, 24. Yeshua says it is impossible to serve two masters. If the problem in the past was legalism in the world churches today, uh, uh, in the past, the problem today is license, where too many of us are in love with the world. I'm reminded of what Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4.10, speaking of a man named Demas. Quote, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. But God gives grace to the humble, not the haughty. So let's just pause for a moment right here in this room and allow the Spirit to do His work. Are you humble or haughty? Do you have some unfulfilled desires? How many of your prayers have gone unasked? Are there any underlying motives or unmasked affections going on in your life? Are you seeking to find satisfaction apart from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? And do you find yourself turning to the pleasures of the world instead of allowing God to give you perfect satisfaction? So, the problems among us are rooted within us. And secondly, the promises to us come from above us. Unless we admit our problems... We won't be in a place to receive God's promises. Have you ever noticed or come to understand that God yearns for your holiness? Look at verse 5. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now while this is not a specific reference to Exodus 20 verse 5, I believe that the prophet certainly had this in mind, quote, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, a jealous God. The word yearning here has the idea of longing for, desiring earnestly, and my guess is that most of us don't think of God as jealous, but he is. He earnestly desires undivided attention of his people. And since God the Father has placed His Spirit within born-again believers, God also longs for the Spirit to communicate with Him. Romans 8.16 says it this way, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Dear ones, if you struggle to have a daily time in God's Word and in prayer, I want you to think on this simple truth. God wants to meet with you more than you want to meet with Him. God wants to meet with you more than you want to meet with Him. And instead of thinking you have to do this, think instead of how much God is longing for a relationship with you.
Now, I don't read very often the Westminster Shorter Catechism, <laughs> but I love this line from it. Quote, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and, there's another conjunction, enjoy him forever. Listen to what it says in Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, until you're satisfied in God alone, you'll never be satisfied. Oh, I need to repeat that. Until you are satisfied in God alone, you will never be satisfied. Dissatisfaction, I think, is designed to lead you to find satisfaction in God alone. God gives grace to the humble. Not only does God want to meet with you more than you want to meet with Him, but verse 6 tells us He's a grace-giving God. Can I please get an amen from the peanut gallery? (laughs) He gives more grace, it says, and more. And therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. One translation says it this way, He gives greater grace. God's grace is greater than whenever your gross sin you have committed is. Jacob then quotes part of Proverbs 3.34. Toward scorners he is scornful, but toward the humble he gives favor. The word oppose was used of setting an army against something. Proverbs 6.17 says God hates haughty eyes. I believe that the only way to receive God's grace, truly receive it in every way you can, is by being humble. If God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, well, we better make sure we're not making ourselves opponents of the Almighty. Amen? Amen. God gives grace to the humble, not the haughty. We need to first admit the problems among us are rooted within us. We can then claim the promises to us that come from above us, which leads us to the third truth from this passage. The prescriptions for us must be taken by us. How many of you have ever gone to the doctor with a sickness? He prescribes some medicine. You go to Walgreens, you get the prescription filled, and you give it to somebody else. Makes no sense. The prescriptions for us must be taken by us. And amazingly, God calls, to, God calls us to intentionally engage in ten actions, ten specific actions that are mentioned here in this section of Scripture. We can't just sit passively by and wait for things to get better or for conflict to suddenly resolve itself. No, there are things we need to do. One, submit to God. Submit to God. The first prescription is found in the beginning verse, beginning of verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. By the way, this is a military term. It means to subjugate yourself by placing yourself under someone else. We're called to put ourselves in rank under God, if you will. So the question is, are you ready to cease fighting and subordinate yourself under his sovereignty? Hudson Taylor once said this, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. I love that. Number two, resist the devil. Boy, is this verse misquoted so many times. 
Resist the devil and, and he will flee. They forget that the first part is submit to God. Then you resist the devil. We're to resist the devil and he will free from us. To resist, by the way, is also a military term. It has the idea of standing against something or someone. Paul says something similar in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. This prescription involves a promise, by the way. When we fight, Satan will take flight. I'm a poet. You didn't know it. Keep this in mind. We're to flee temptation, but we're to fight the devil. Number three, draw near to God. The third prescription found in verse 8 also comes with a promise. When you draw near to God, here's the promise. He will draw near to you. Psalm 73, 28, quote, But for me, it is good to be near God. Everybody knows of an author named J. Oswald Sanders? Yes? If not, you should pick up a book by him and read it. In his classic book, Enjoying Intimacy with God, he writes this, quote, Both scripture and experience teach that it is we, not God, who determine the degree of intimacy with him that we enjoy. We are, at this moment, as close to God as we really choose to be. Number four, cleanse your hands. Cleanse your hands. Dear ones, when we submit, when we resist, and then draw near, I believe that we become acutely aware of our sinfulness. We're called in verse 8 to be free from any outward filth. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Again, Jacob is pulling no punches. So the question here for all of us is, is there some activity or behavior or habit in our lives that we need to stop? 2 Corinthians 7.1 Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Number five, purify your hearts. Purify your hearts. We also need to actively engage in inward purification because we are and can be both double-minded and distracted. Double-minded and distracted. There's a good example of this found in David's prayer. It's in Psalm 51, verses 7 and 10 go like this. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Number six. Here's a real easy one. We need to embrace brokenness. Embrace brokenness. In a world that overly focuses, and that's putting it mildly, on one's happiness... And while too many quote-unquote Christian books call us to have our best life now and to stop apologizing for things, God calls us to embrace brokenness. Verse 9, lament and mourn and weep. Lament and mourn and weep. We need to see our sinfulness and weep about it. 
lament over it and mourn. Our sins should cause us sorrow. And Jacob develops this further. We'll get to it. Chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Instead of focusing on laughter, God calls us to lament. Quote, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Reminded of Lamentations 5, 15 and 16, quote, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Yeshua said it like this. Luke 5.25 Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. 7. Humble yourselves. God gives grace to the humble, not the haughty. And until we embrace our brokenness, unfortunately we persist, persist in our pride. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Someone has said if we don't humble ourselves now, the Lord will do it later. The phrase before the Lord, it's a beautiful picture of standing before the face of God. I'm reminded of Isaiah 66 too, quote, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. The prescription here also comes with a promise. The lowly one becomes lifted up, quote, and he will exalt you. Number eight, refuse to judge others. Refuse to judge others. Refuse to judge others. Refuse to judge others. If we sincerely and intentionally obey the commands and instructions in verses 7 to 10, we should be gracious with other people. Check out verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. Once again, Jacob is appealing to family, to mishpacha, relationships, by using the term brother three times in this verse. The word literally literally means from the same womb. We can see from the tense of the verb, by the way, that he's correcting something that is ongoing, happening frequently. Stop speaking against one another, my brethren. And what does judge mean? It means to sift out and analyze evidence And it's also in the present tense indicating that they were continually passing judgment on each other. Someone wrote this satirical poem, which is sadly not too far from the truth in many houses of worship. It goes like this. Believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else. Confess. Feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink what I drink, look as I look, do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. We need to stop looking down our noses on those who sin differently than we do. 
None of us are perfect. So stop demanding perfection from those around us, around you. And let's stop standing over others in spiritual judgment. You see, when we speak against a sister or blast a brother, we are speaking wrongly of the law, Jacob tells us. First, chapter 2, verse 8, defines the royal law this way. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that's a quote from the Tanakh, from Leviticus 19.18. Listen to this text in context as we pick it up in verse 17. Quote, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Number nine. Let God be the judge. When we stand in judgment of others, we're really standing in the place of the ultimate judge. Look at the last part of verse 11 and the first part of verse 12. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. You see, when we judge others, we're actually claiming to have a better standard of judgment than God does. Remember this, ju- this truth. He's God and you're not. I think it's true that the people who have the greatest number of faults are themselves the most merciless in the criticism of others. This passage hurts. It's like the guy who explained to his co-workers what happened while he was driving to work. I noticed a woman driving 65 miles an hour with her face up next to her rearview mirror putting on eyeliner. I was shocked that she would do something like that. She scared me so much that I dropped my electric razor, which knocked the donut out of my other hand, and all the confusion of trying to straighten out the car using my knees to steer, it knocked my cell phone away from my ear, which caused it to fall into the coffee between my legs, all because of that crazy woman driver. When we criticize or put down or judge a brother or a sister, in essence, this is what we're saying. I know better than God does. In Romans 2.1, Paul points out the absurdity of judging others because we tend to do the same things. Quote, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. Here's a helpful paraphrase of 2 Corinthians 5.10. Eventually, we're all going to end up kneeling side by side in the place of judgment facing God. Your critical and condescending ways aren't going to improve your position one bit. Listen, if God is going to judge others, why do we need to help him out? He knows them better than we do. He certainly loves them a lot more than we do. There was a pastor, an author, a writer, and a friend of D.L. Moody. His name was F.B. Meyer. This is what he said, quote, It's a terrible thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of his fellow sinners. You know what that reminds me of? Reminds me of what David chose to do when God gave him an option for his punishment. 2 Samuel 24, 14. I'm in great distress. 
Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but let me not fall into the hand of man. And number 10, receive the one who was judged for your sins. Receive the one who was judged for your sins. Look at how verse 12 ends. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he is able to save and to destroy. So check this out. We're all guilty before Yeshua, the ultimate judge of the universe. We've broken his laws and deserve justice. And as a result, Yeshua said these strong words in Matthew 10, 28. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Aren't you glad he came to save us from the judgment that our sins deserved? He died in our place. He died as a substitute. He was raised from the dead on the third day as the conqueror over death and Satan and our sins. And we all have a choice to make today. You can either receive Yeshua who satisfied God's justice through his death, burial, and resurrection. Or you can face the lawgiver and judge and receive the just penalty for all your sins by spending eternity in hell. There's no in-between. What will it be? If you're not delivered, you will be destroyed. So listen, the good news of the gospel is not relax, you rock. (laughs) The good news is this, you deserved to be humiliated and condemned for your sin, but God sent his son to be humiliated and condemned in your place. I love the good news, it's found in Hebrews 7.25. He is able to save to the uttermost. Do you know where the uttermost is? I don't know either, but it's uttermost. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And our passage ends with a probing question. Who are you to judge another? Who are you to judge another? Listen to this reading. It's called Judge Not. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty of it all, but by the, or by the lights of its decor. But it was the folks in heaven who made me sputter and thrash, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I always thought was rotting away in hell, was sitting in heaven looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus. What's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child, he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. So if there's anyone here this morning that's willing to be saved so that you don't come into judgment by the ultimate judge, I would ask that in your heart you please pray this prayer with me. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and deserve your just judgment. I repent from how I've been living and turn to you. 
I believe Yeshua died in my place on the cross and rose again on the third day, and now I receive him into my life. Please save me from my sins and from your righteous wrath. I want to be born again. So I place all my trust in you and you alone. And if there's anything in my life that you don't like, just please get rid of it. And I pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.